Before we start, a quick note that this episode was recorded in person before the appearance of COVID-19. Any references to group activities were well before any of us were concerned about social distancing. Please stay safe and enjoy the show. That, that just kind of drove me, this idea of people, that there were these groups of people who got to make decisions for everybody else. But as a citizen, you could be at the table if you chose to be. And then why wouldn't you be? So that idea that people would sit out, like not exercise their right to vote, not go to a government meeting, not read a newspaper, like those things, as I learned more about how life worked, it drove me crazy that other people didn't do that. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. This is Dave Fiore. In this episode, I speak with Rachel Pienta, the 4-H Youth Development Program Director at the University of Florida's Extension Office in Wakulla County. A native of upstate New York, Rachel finished high school in rural central Florida, where she says she felt a little bit like Kevin Bacon in Footloose. She earned a PhD from Florida State University, has led organizations, run local political machines, and is a longtime educator. Rachel, along with her husband David, whom she met at a speed dating event, gives back to the community in many ways, including hosting exchange students from around the world. We started by talking about her early years. So you were born and grew up in Bloomingburg, New uh, York? So I was actually, I was born in Middletown, which is sort of the larger city center for that area. Okay. And... um but Bloomingburg, we moved there. My parents bought a house in Bloomingburg, which is sort of up the mountain a little bit. This is the foothills of the Catskills. Okay. So Middletown is um, very much a bedroom community for New York City. It's so on Catskills the- is like dirty dancing, Yes. Right? Oh, totally. Okay. Totally dirty dancing, for, for sure. Um, yeah. So we, we bought a house in Bloomingburg when I was about three. And we would live there until I was 16. And the dirty dancing thing is really funny because um, this is not in my resume anywhere. But (laughs) so my dad, I I would describe him as a serial entrepreneur because he's owned, he did own, he's passed away, but he owned a lot of businesses. But a primary thing throughout his life was working in the field of magic. And And he created magical illusions and gave lectures on how to do close-up magic, which he was an expert at. So he wrote books and produced videos and wow. gave lectures. But the um, at the time, the Borscht Belt Catskill hotels were in still pretty prevalent in the 70s and 80s. Many of them have since closed, burned down, become other things. Right. But um, I spent some of my formative years following my dad around those dirty dancing-style hotels as he went to magic conventions or did lectures or supported other – kind of famous people with their things they wanted to do for their act. Like if Dom DeLuise wanted to pull a lit match out of his smoking jacket, (laughs) my dad was the guy who helped make him that happen. Yeah. Wow. So I grew up with – I can remember going out, staying at a particular hotel with my dad and going out in the morning and um, the guys with the tigers, Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. They they walked their tiger around the pool in the very early morning. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Because so, that's when tigers like to go on a walk. Uh, to taunt prey, <laughs> yes. But, so, um, so that was kind of a different type of growing up because I got to interact with some famous people growing up, like David Copperfield and Captain Kangaroo of all people, and just there's a there's a list. Captain Kangaroo. Captain Kangaroo. Mr. I, Green Jeans. Mis- the whole deal. Yes. Yeah. 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 I didn't actually recognize him out of his persona when I first met him. And did he have the sideburns though? I he guess, did. Right? He did. Yeah. But just out of context, I was. Yeah. 
it took me a minute to place them. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I got to have some fun experiences like that growing up because of my, da- my dad's work in magic. So your dad was kind of a magician to the magicians. Exactly. Actually, that was um, how he was known. He was the magician's magician. Wow. And um, if you Googled him, you'd see people talking about that online. That's amazing. It, it was a pretty cool way to grow up. It yeah. definitely um, gave me some different experiences. I, um, you know, most kids can't claim to be cut in half or s- suspended on sixteen swords or made to disappear. So I, I you know, I've levitated. So it's. Um, so was he experimenting on you oh, when yeah. he was developing some of the tricks? He would experiment. Illusions? He would experiment his illusions. Yes, very good. You <laughs> must know some magicians. Um, he would experiment on me. Also, sometimes I gave him ideas because I would think he could do anything. So at one point, I handed him a quarter, and there were there are different types of tricks where you make things pass through surfaces, right. balloons especially. So I wanted him to put a quarter into a balloon. I'm like, Dad, you could do that. Put a quarter into the balloon, and he's like. Actually, I haven't done that that before, but let me let me think about that. And that became a trick actually that was distributed by by Disney World for many years called the Coin Balloonacy. And he developed that because of your idea. Because of my idea, because I said, "Daddy, do this. Make make the quarter go through the balloon." So it became an illusion. Wow. I did not expect that. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't show up on a resume. <laughs> no, no, but it should. That's awesome. Tell me about the rest of your family. Did you have siblings or what What was family like outside of the world of magic and illusion? So um, I had one sister who also actually has passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it was me and a younger sister, five years younger. And when we lived in New York, we kind of lived in this old rambling farmhouse that um, we had chickens and always dogs and cats and a, and a, yard, and a garden out back because my, my mom was a farmer's daughter. That was her background. And so she likes animals and growing things to this day. So we lived in New York and she was a nurse. And my dad had businesses with his mother, different retail operations, and then the magic. And then my grandparents decided to sell their horse farm and move to Florida to retire. And my mother said, you know, I'm kind of tired of snow. I'd like to follow them. So they actually went in on property together in Florida and bought 40 acres in Bushnell, some down in Sumter County, just below Ocala. They wanted to be in horse country but not pay Ocala prices at the time. Right. So um, between my sophomore and junior year, we moved to Florida. And that was an interesting transition. Florida in the 80s, I thought I was like – it was like being Kevin Bacon in Footloose. <laughs> so it, I – it was that between that and the Twilight Zone because it was so culturally different yeah. at the time. And especially that part of Florida, that's inland rural Florida. Super, super rural. So there were things that were a culture shock. I mean, having grown up as, you know, quintessential Yankee with a New York accent. I mean, my father was from Brooklyn. And when I was 16, I talked like a city person. And to move to Florida with all these southern accents in a rural area, I – you know, I was like very exotic and there were things I didn't a – lot, a lot that became clear to me about American history because Florida was under court-ordered desegregation dating to the 70s. So in the 80s, that was really fresh in people's minds. Right. And so I was not aware of race issues, for instance, or the idea that the Civil War was taught in a different way between the North and the South. I'd never heard the phrase War of Northern Aggression until I was right. 16 years old. So it was a pride of Southern history, pride of Southern history and this whole different perspective on American history. So that was a big sort of consciousness flip for me. And my first experience with culture shock, I, I made some great friends and, um, I actually, the year of my, I'm coming up on my 30-year reunion, but the year of my 20-year reunion, I went to my Florida reunion, actually helped plan my Florida reunion, and then I went to New York to the kids I had known since kindergarten and was part of that reunion also. So I have two graduating classes. With the floor in Bushnell, did it take a while or did you you adapt pretty quickly, do you think? So I adapted pretty quickly. I got into... I'd had some good advice from one of my guidance counselors in New York who said, "Get on. it's a sports-oriented high school. Get on a sport and, and get in some extracurricular activities, and that will that will right. it, be open to everything. Right. So when I, I went and got on the volleyball team, became part of the yearbook staff, and then I um, 
I actually went anytime someone asked me to go to to their church group. I went, even though I'm a Jewish kid. I went to lots of Baptist churches and made lots of friends that way. Um, my sister probably had a harder time. She was starting sixth grade, and middle school's tough for anybody. That's rough. Yeah. So. The move was definitely a struggle for her. And years later, my mother said, if I had known how hard it would be for her, I would have waited till you were both out of high school, which for me probably would have been super, super different. I don't know that I ever would have ended up in Florida, but I ended up making friends and deciding to go to University of Florida. And, and that was so that the move was formative in a positive way for me, maybe not so much for Sarah. Right. I assume you did well in high school. You made good grades. All that's all that part of it was good. I did. I did. Um, I always I always struggled with math and science, but I made up for it in the other classes. I was very good at English and history and writing and things like that. But math and science were always the hard sciences. Like I could do well in psychology, but like not chemistry. And then math was always a struggle. Right. But I so I kind of had to balance it out. All right. So. You're, you're finishing up high school in Bushnell, and you're doing well. And why did you choose the University of Florida? What led you to Gainesville? So I I didn't really want to go that far from my family. Um, I just had this big move, and it was like, oh, I could move back to New York. And I have you know extended family there, but my, my nuclear family is here, and I was always super close to them. I didn't want to go really far. So I said, let me concentrate on Florida schools. And at that point, I was like, oh, and I have in-state tuition down here. This makes sense. So I, I toured schools and um, was looking at University of Miami. At that time, I was really into communications, actually, and thought that I wanted to do something with, with writing and journalism. And so I went to University of Miami, looked at them, looked at Florida State, um, USF, University of Florida. And you know, it was really came down to UM and UF. And then I realized that I would my parents would probably have to take out a second mortgage for me to go to UM. Right. And as said, a private school. As a private school. I was like, yeah, you know, I think UF makes sense. It's closer to home. It's a better financial deal. I think I'm going there. And my whole family fell in love with the campus and thought it was really beautiful. And at the time, Florida State was not beautiful. I, I had gone up there for Girl State, and the campus was not as as beautifully developed as it is now. And so it was um, sort of 70s industrial looking with lots of like woods in the middle of campus. And the, the stadium wasn't what it is now. No, so it was still the erector set. It was set still the erector set. So, right. so yeah, UF looked like a country club by comparison, and it seemed to make more sense. Right. And you studied English and political science. I did. I did. I ended up not going the communications route. Um, I was in college at the time that the Gulf War broke out, Desert Storm, and journalism was changing. And if I was going to college now, I think journalism might be more attractive. But, I, but at that, that time, in the, in the, it was 1990, 91, it looked like journalism was um, just reading someone else's news. That didn't really interest me as I saw things unfold. I started to think more about policy and being interested in, in that side of things. Did an internship with then Senator Kirkpatrick, State Senator Kirkpatrick, went um, overseas and interned with a member of parliament. Oh, what and was that like? Really interesting. Um, he, the guy had been knighted by the queen for his service. So he's in the House of Commons, but he was Sir Fergus Montgomery. <laughs> that sounds very important. <laughs> um, he thought so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting because I got to go into Parliament every day with a group of students and um, do some different things. And then and they're also, pretty rude to each other there, right? Oh, I mean, oh it's yeah. It's a much so, different dynamic. It's amazing to, to sit in the House of Commons and have them yell at each other. I was there during the Chunnel debates when they were going to do right. that. And they were not happy about giving the French easier access to to Britain. They thought that was a bad thing, right. that, that the French were somehow going to take over their culture. So did you immediately start pursuing your master's at Florida State or did you do something in between? Um, let me think about this. Oh, in between, I spent some time in Washington interning for um, then Congresswoman Karen Thurman. Mm -hmm. So I did that and then um, also took a little break to work at a summer camp in the Poconos. And then I went up to Florida State to do the master's degree and got um, got another policy internship with the, the House of Representatives. Right. 
Why, why did you choose Florida State for your graduate studies? Because they, um, the legislature was there, basically. And I was interested in policy. And I thought, let me go be where the state capitol is. And that's going to be the best opportunity for me to get immersed in policy and maybe actually get some hands-on experience. Right. What elements of policy were you most interested in? What was driving that desire to learn more about that? Growing up in the 80s, there was – at the time, there was this like epidemic of teen suicides. And my school was hit – my middle school was hit pretty hard with it. It would be like you you get a bathroom pass and go in the bathroom and there would be some kid in the middle of overdosing in your ba- in the bathroom. And this would just happen over and over again. And some of my friends and I were talking about it and we're like, we don't have – you know, we, we see on like ABC after school specials that there are like teen counseling programs and there are peer programs and our school doesn't have anything like that. And one day I marched into the principal's office and said, enough is enough. I am tired of finding kids passed out in the bathroom. We need to do something. I want a peer counseling program. And my principal looked at me and said, let me see what I can do. <laughs> so um, I mean, that, that takes a lot of guts to go in there and do that. Guts are just like no sense of like, you know, anything except that I could be a bull in a pine- china shop, right? Right. But, um, but I was pretty insistent. And they actually – the school district actually – he the, that principal went to the school district on my behalf. And actually they hired a, um, a peer counselor expert for the whole district to develop a program. And then they said they were going to pilot it in the high school. And at that time I was still in the middle school. Because our ninth grade was still in the middle schools because the high school wasn't big enough and they were in the process of expanding it. And so I had pitched a fit because I was like, look, we're, you know, we're having this problem in the middle school. We need this here. We need to be part of it. And so they said, okay, fine. You, you know, we'll, we'll let eighth graders and ninth graders get trained also. And were kids coming forward to take advantage of this? Yes. Yeah. It was pretty mind-blowing, the stuff that some of the kids were going through and the things that came out. Like the adults in the room, I remember, were just like really blown away by what was happening. And that influenced me, just this idea of, okay, like sometimes policies don't take care of all the things and you can look at a way to, to fix them. So it was this really early formative experience yeah. to say that policy can improve lives because I understood that it was a policy that allowed us to go forward to try to do this. So I started being really interested in policy and thinking education policy because in my head, it all started with kids. Like if there was any problem in society, we should start with the kids and then go from there because we were going to be you know, the next generation. So it would make sense that we were the foundation of everything. And so that was sort of like my primary belief going forward that I was trying to figure out, well, what does my career look like if I want to work in that space? And you continued on to get your PhD. I did. I did. did I, you, was that always part of the plan? Uh, no, no. I um, So when I was an undergrad, I thought I was going to somehow become um, the national um, Secretary of Education. <laughs> so, um, and I had no idea how that worked, but I just. That's still possible, it's, I guess. It's, pro- right? it's still possible. Um, some certain things have to happen, but you know. yeah. <laughs> um, at, at UF, the, the, the counselor said, you know, you. You know, you want to work in education policy. There's a lot of different routes to take this. And they um, they advised me at the time to go out and teach right away and get that under my belt. And I really wanted more school. So um, I said, well, I'm going, to go to, I'm going to go to FSU and get into their teaching program. And then also look, because they had the, there was the policy program at the legislature, and I was really interested in it. And the first time I applied, I didn't get in. But I was, I was like, I'm going to try this again. So let me go up to FSU. I'll apply again. We'll see what happens. And the second time I applied, I got into the policy fellowship for the legislature. And then while I was doing it, I started to think about, okay, well, what comes next with policy? I saw lots of people talk about education who didn't necessarily know much about it, except that they, like me, had been students. So I did things like a reading recovery program at a middle school and just started to try to get more hands-on experience. You know, I'd been a camp counselor, but I hadn't been a teacher per se. So I took as many of those opportunities as I could. Right. And then 
as I was getting done with my master's degree and getting done with my fellowship, I was like, okay, what's next? And so I started trying to decide. I was like, I, I'm going to go to school more. But either it's going to be a law degree or it's going to be a doctorate. And then my folks in the legislature that I worked with said, we got tons of lawyers up here. Go get your doctorate. So that really influenced me. Yeah. After you got your doctorate degree, you where did you go after that? Well, I worked during my doctorate degree, actually. Okay. So I ran an after-school program during for a while during my after my doctoral degree um, for elementary school. For It was a Florida State program. And so I was their after-school program director. And then um, I got the chance to teach at the university as part of my graduate program. So I started teaching classes. I taught at TCC, Florida A&M, FSU, um, Walden University, and Kaiser College Wow! at different times. So some traditional um, – I did some of the early online education before it was really a big thing. So I was sort of a pioneer with that about 20 years ago. So Did you enjoy that? I, I did. I mean, it's a I, different experience. It's a very different experience. And actually is what I ended up doing with Valdosta State for five years when they started a graduate online program. You know, what do you take from that time of teaching in all those different places and in different ways? Well, gosh – I did a lot of traditional teaching between TCC and FSU and FAMU, and I still know a lot of those students today, and seeing where they are in their career is really neat. Um, sometimes getting to help them in things with things in their professional life because some of them still call on me is really awesome. It's nice to be able to still have that impact. I also um, have really fond memories of the four years I taught at a high school, and I coached soccer, and I taught AP literature. So when does that fit in? When is that? You were at Wakulla High? So I got a job at Wakulla High School right after I finished the doctoral program. And so that was um, that was 05 to 09. What was it like teaching at Wakulla High? Uh, interesting. Culture shock at first also. I did, there a were different culture than Bushnell culture? Somewhat similar to Bushnell in in many ways, but different than what I had been living in in Tallahassee. Right. And now Wakulla over the last 15 years has become a little more like Tallahassee. But in 05, it still held a lot of its very rural character. Wasn't that long after the net, the net ban had really decimated the fishing culture in Wakulla. Right. So there were a lot of families in transition. So there were different things that were happening in that county that was that were changing their way of life, and the children were experiencing that. Right. And coastal Wakulla County is even different than Crawfordville. It I mean, is. There's a wide variety of situations there. There is a wide variety of situations. So there were things that I didn't realize about families living on the coast who might be living in some pr more primitive living conditions at that point, who had been living pretty simple lives you know, on the water or farming, doing things that were a little bit removed from the more, you know, modern Tallahassee experience. Right. Yeah. So getting to experiencing that and understanding that difference was um, was a learning curve that first year. Um, I, you know, I then really came to appreciate those kids a lot and really um, – Loved, loved working with them, loved coaching, loved seeing kids figure stuff out and decide what they wanted to do with their lives. All right. So I saw on your resume that you worked as a methodologist and doctoral advisor at Walden College. I did. I have Walden. no idea what that means. So, um, yeah. So um, Walden University is part of laureate education. It's actually an international system of, of colleges and universities it's okay. worldwide. At the time where I was looking at going back into university teaching, I had looked at a bunch of different places. And so I had that K-12 teaching they told me to have, but they said, oh, well, we'd really like you to have doctoral advising now too. See, the game changes, you know? Yeah. So I was like, oh, I don't have that. So Valdosta State was willing to hire me, but they weren't teaching me. They weren't um, hiring me to teach with doctoral students. They, the highest level were EDS, education specialist. So I said, I got to get some doctoral advising experience. And Walden said, well, we need people to advise people working on their EDDs, their education doctorates. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So now we move into another phase, 2010, 2011, where according to your resume, it kind of blows up as far as activity and things you're involved in. Those include things like 
serving on the Wakulla Democratic Executive Committee in several roles, including county chair. And so I want to ask you about that. How did you get into politics and what was your motivation and what what did you do with uh, the Wakulla County Democratic Party? Oh, gosh. So the political thing goes back to my childhood because I had relatives who served in different elected positions on town councils and school boards and things like that back in New York. So I always had this interest in politics. And then um, as a college student, I had been involved in in politics, working on campaigns and also in student government. So and some some with the Democratic Party in college, I volunteered like for their state conference and stuff. Right. But I had really taken a break for it for a while during my graduate studies. Um, my parents always talked to me about politics growing up when I was little. My first memory of a presidential election was being a very small child, and when Jimmy Carter was running. And my parents really liked Jimmy Carter. And they were like, he's a peanut farmer from Georgia, and he's going to be our president. And I just thought that was the greatest thing ever because, I mean, he's a peanut farmer. He sounded really cool because I was five. Um, so, but, Anybody who makes peanuts, right? Exactly. Be cool. I like peanut butter. This right. is great. So, <laughs> yes. Um, late, years later, I actually told um, President Carter that after he was president, I met him later on – and uh, <laughs> he thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> he's like, he's like, great, great. We all like peanut butter. <laughs> so why why do you think you always had an interest in politics? What what drove that? I was just fascinated by the idea of governance and policy. It was just really interesting. This idea of people being interactive with their government, that you could have a voice, that you could make things happen. And I just, as a young age, I started just reading all these different things about government and policy and thinking that was really interesting. My parents, my dad specifically talked to me a lot about government. Um, you know, he was a young man, of course, during Watergate and all and those things that happened and those were formative for him and his understanding of politics and policy. So we had a lot of deep dive conversations growing up about government and his philosophy of, well, you always have to question your government and you don't take for granted anything that they do. Just because someone's an authority doesn't mean they're right and you should question them. Now that said, I did apply that in terms of my interaction with him. And then I told him, you told me to question authority. <laughs> and he said, I didn't mean me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Parents are different. I was like, wait right. a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. But that that just kind of drove me, this idea of people, that there were these groups of people who got to make decisions for everybody else. But as a citizen, you could be at the table if you chose to be. And then why wouldn't you be? Right. So that idea that people would sit out, like not exercise their right to vote, not go to a government meeting, not read a newspaper, like those things, as I learned more about how life worked, it drove me crazy that other people didn't do that. Like, what's wrong with you? Why not? Which is one of the reasons of getting into party politics was, well, can I convince other people to do this? Because they should be. Like people fought really hard for us to have the right to vote and for us to have this representative form of government. And like I used to tell my teaching colleagues, hey, our our profession is one that is totally policy driven. And as citizens, you can impact the policies that basically govern your work life. Why wouldn't you be involved in politics? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's just – so for me, it was just – it was sort of this thing that like, this makes sense to me. Why doesn't anyone else get it? Like, how can I help them get it? So that really got me into po to getting more into politics. Um, and then you jumped back in. I jumped back in. Yeah, when I lived in Leon County, I sort of visited politics. Um, but Leon County is a, is a very different beast of politics and there um, there are some strong personalities up here. And uh, <laughs> I, when I was in graduate school, I was mostly watching and lurking and occasionally like helping out if somebody called me with something. And then when I got to Wakala, because it was smaller and the personalities were different, I said, let me get back in. And I didn't tell anybody I had been involved. I didn't tell anybody my political resume. And I started getting involved and I actually got, um, got kind of outed right after the 08 election. My um, the then party chair was going to a state party meeting, 
and was sitting around talking about people who were active in her local party that she was hoping to bring into leadership. And then she threw my name into the ring. And everyone who we're was like, state party wait, officers what? around the state, they were like, right, she's in your county. And she's like, do you yeah. know who she is and what <laughs> Take she's – like, well then, So, yeah, I came, she came back from the state meeting and called me up and said, you have been holding out on me. And I was like – Like, that's smart, right? Oh. You don't want to come in there and say, look, I – well, yeah, Let exactly. Me, you know, I'm the one with all the experience. Let me start running the show. No, nobody wants that. No, exactly. Right. And I, yeah. And so I wasn't going to do that. I was kind of like, I'm new here. I'm just going to, you know, be a rank and file and do what she needs me to do. And but then you got outed, so it, it was got, over. After it was that, over right? at that point. At that point, it was kind of like, oh, I guess, yeah, I need right. to step up and do a little more. But do you enjoy that? Were you ready to do that? Yeah, I was ready to do that. I was ready. So um, when it came time for me to, to jump into the role of being the Democratic Party chair, I was I was ready to do right. it. So and it, that was a lot of fun. I got to do some interesting things. Um, and if I read the timeline right, that's right at the time of President Obama's re-election. Yes, time, right? I got super involved in President Obama's re-election. In, are you involved in party politics now? So I have... Um, I'm at a different phase. I am involved, but in a different way. So I decided to – when I left working at Valdosta State and I went to work for the American Cancer Society, I started to phase out of having a leadership role in party politics because I had many counties in the panhandle that I was working in where I was known. And I wanted to have the American Cancer Society walk in the door, not the Democratic Party. So I had to step back because that was, um, you know, cancer, cancer should be purple, right? Cancer should, it's so, and I needed to be able to work across the aisle and have people who weren't Democrats have confidence in me. So I said, first I stepped down as chair, kept my state committee woman position, and then ultimately said, I'm not going to be state committee woman anymore. I'm at I'm at that phase again where if people call me I do stuff, but at this point I actually probably help as many Republicans as I do Democrats, and it's um, I think as I've grown older and as if things have changed in national politics, it's become more about the people in the communities than straight party line ideology, right? Which is not conducive to me, you know, leading a local party because you have to be straight party line ideology and. I, I'm not going to say I'm totally post-party because I'm still a registered Democrat, um, but I actually at times have changed my registration to vote in a Republican primary. And that – and bringing you know, to where I am now for the American Cancer Society where I – you know, being based out of Tallahassee but having 14 counties and ha- basically half the panhandle, my, my territory went from Madison all the way over to um, Bay and Washington County. And so that's a lot of – it's a mixture of blue and red territory. Right. So I needed to be able to go to, you know, any county commission, any chamber, any rotary, as it were, and not have them say, oh, she's that Democratic operative. They need to say she's the lady with the American Cancer Society. So I really worked hard to kind of, you know, move myself out of one space into another and then have used that now in my role with UF IFAS because I have developed across the party line relationships. And so, you know, there are people who know, yeah, she, you know, she's, she goes deep way back into democratic politics, but then they also say, but it's funny because they'll be like, she's not like them, whatever that means. I don't know. I don't <laughs> I delve that's into a compliment, it. Right? It could be a compliment or not. But that said, I, I have been, I am welcome in more rooms than I might have been at one point. <laughs> so let's just say that. This episode is sponsored by Locally Loved Tallahassee, formerly Socially Loved. I'm excited to have a partner that has the same general goals of sharing great local stories and can benefit from reaching our audience. Their focus is to love where you live by sharing some smart, safe ways to love local. Even if it takes a few extra steps right now, supporting our neighbors is always the right choice. I encourage you to be part of their new Facebook group, Locally Loved Tallahassee, focused on celebrating local people and places. Join the thousands, including me, who are already on board and sharing stories about what makes Tallahassee so special. In 2014 is when you started with the American Cancer Society. Yes. And you yes. were there for four years or so? It's about, about three years. Three years? Okay. 
And I saw that you raised more than $4 million for cancer research yes. in that time. That must be pretty fulfilling for you. And that's a sounds like a great accomplishment. It, it is. It is. And it's um, working with the American Cancer Society. I had been a volunteer with the American Cancer Society for years prior, um, have lost way too many family members and friends to cancer, um, including my, my sister to liver cancer. And so working um, working at the American Cancer Society was just deeply, deeply personal because I, I you know, my sister died when she was 31 and my, my nephew was four. Wow. Yeah, that was a big, you know, of anybody I've lost to cancer and I've lost a few, that one is the one that's the sucker punch for me. Yeah. And um, so to actually work in that space for, for every day for three years, um, deeply emotional, at times really hard for me, but also really fulfilling. So what was your job? What did, what did you do? So I did something called senior market manager, which is equivalent to um, executive director in another nonprofit. So my job was to sort of keep all the balls up in the air, be the person who interacted with government, with CEOs, with the press. I negotiated media contracts, um, tried to be a rainmaker for my field staff who were doing events. So basically saying they'd be out in a community working and they'd say, well, I can't get into this business or I can't get this government official to talk to me. Then I would be the one who could open the door for them and make things work better so they could throw a successful fundraising event. And so and then I also did some work with our governmental affairs staff as the being the Tallahassee-based manager, then I could go into the legislature with them on their lobby days and have those relationships and help them get the volunteers into the right offices to have conversations that we needed to have about research funding. Right. I can imagine giving your history with the disease that that must have been very fulfilling. And I mean, it's, you're doing good work no matter what your history is, but understanding how personal it is, that must have been, you feel good about it because it's hard, but you were making a difference and that had to make you feel good. It, it did make me feel good. Um, I actually got offered the job on the anniversary of my sister's death. Hmm. So that was like this sort of lightning bolt, like, okay, is, uh, is God, the universe, whatever you think is talking directly to me right now. Um, so that kind of that that sort of set the tone probably for my whole experience there that it was um you were supposed to be there I was supposed to be there and it was deeply personal and we've made leaps and bounds in fighting cancer the the recent numbers on that are showing that we are winning the fight which means that we're catching cancer earlier and that when we catch it we're able to basically treat it more effectively. So not only do we cure cancer, but we also make it possible to live very healthy, fulfilling lives with cancer for far longer than we ever could. So I, you know, knowing that I was part of that and seeing yeah, those sure. things is um, super, super fulfilling and meaningful. That said, now that I have moved on from that, I also um, realized that not crying every week at work is um, a better is a, a bonus. So, like, yeah, I don't know that I could have. I've, I mean, I have friends who've worked for that organization for many, many years, and I, I think that they must, they must control their emotions better than me because I could be a sobby mess at times. I can imagine. Yeah. So, yeah, it was – so, yeah, so now I get to work with kids and animals and I don't cry every week. It's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get – I want to bounce back at some point to – I'm just going to go there first. Then we'll get into the IFAS part. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure where this fits in, but I, I don't want to skip over your work with the Oasis Center, with the anti-bullying task force and some of the things that you've volunteered with over the years. Um, when did that happen and how did you get involved and – Tell me about your your desire to work on some of those. Okay, um, so Oasis. Yeah. So, the, so in graduate school, I volunteered with Refuge House. I um, I went through their volunteer training, and when I did it, I said, I want to do the hardest volunteer job they have. Like, well, the one that seems to me to be the hardest. And at the time, what struck me as the hardest was being the person who one of the volunteers who carried, at the time, a beeper, right? That tells you how long ago that was. They yeah. carried a beeper to respond to rape calls at the hospital. So you would go in and be a victim, volunteer victim advocate with someone who had been raped. And 
you would be there through their exam and also through um, evidence gathering by law enforcement. So I had done that um, for th- about, oh gosh, four years as a volunteer with Refuge House and then had gotten a little bit involved also with their fundraising and community outreach. And so got to know all the staff, including at that time, the executive director, Kelly Audie. And she, when she decided to move on from Refuge House, there was a big dinner for her. And at that time, she announced her idea of having a women's center in Tallahassee. She had um, lived in other places that had had one, but Tallahassee did not. And that was sort of her dream was that Tallahassee could have a center for women and girls. And at that point, actually, we all pulled out our checkbooks and wrote her initial checks that day at the at the lunch. And then it took um, a few more years, but she made Oasis happen. So when it happened, I said, sure, I will sign up to be a founding member and make a donation to be part of those right. original people to get it started. So that um, that it was near and dear to my heart. And I got to volunteer closely with that for a while. I still support it, but not not as closely as I did just because there's a lot of things out there that I support. Right. And um, you also worked on an anti-bullying task force? I did. So I had been really concerned about the issue of bullying for a while um, before I was a teacher, seeing it in the media. But then as a teacher, seeing that that bullying was really having an adverse effect on some of our kids and that it was this strange dynamic and that it was being amplified by social media. And so there were some high-profile national cases that came out around the turn of the last decade. And we had some things that happened in Tallahassee with it as well. So people um, people had approached then-State Representative Michelle Rowinkle-Vasalinda about getting a task force going. And I had known Michelle for years. We worked together at TCC, and then I um, supported her when she ran for office that first time. And so when she convened a task force, I said, I'm going to go and volunteer and jumped in and did some programming with her and then had some different ideas about how to how to bring that out in the community. And Michelle really liked that direction and said, let's let's do these things. All right. So final job jump to where you are today. Yeah. 2017, you started at the University of Florida IFAS Extension Office in Wakulla County. I did. So uh, first, some basic stuff. What does IFAS stand for? <laughs> Institute for Food and Agricultural Science. Okay. And they're all over the state, right? University of Florida. Has an office in every county in Florida. Interestingly enough, it really got started because policymakers at the time said that um, innovations in agriculture should really start with youth. And the idea is if you teach the latest and greatest about growing food and how to work with livestock to children, then they would bring that out into their communities. Seems logical. Seems logical. Seems logical. And I don't know if you're noticing a pattern at all, but that really aligns with what I believe about education. Sure. So yeah. – so, um, yeah. So yeah, it's get kind them of, while they're young. Get them while they're young. Exactly. They make them be lifelong learners and innovators, and you know who knows what can happen. And so your specific role there is the 4-H Youth Development Program Director. Yes. Right? I so what does that mean? So I get to um, I get to run the the youth the 4-H youth programs, and that means I get to recruit and train and supervise volunteers that help. We run those programs. So there are some different ways that we deliver 4-H youth programming. We do that in big programs that are multi-county, regional, statewide, and those tend to be very much um, faculty-driven. And then we do community clubs, which are run by members of the community who are trained by faculty, meaning the 4-H staff, and that we... um, We give them curriculum, we give them resources, we help support them in running a community club that aligns with some area of interest they have. Now, um, 4-H in the United States, over 6 million children participate in these activities, and it's over 200,000 in the state of Florida. And it is the largest... it's the largest youth-serving organization, not, and it is a nonprofit, lives at land-grant institutions across the country. So it's different universities in every state. 
So do you know what the four H's stand for? Head, heart, hands, and health. So that's pretty representative of the scope of the services and programs. They hit one of those areas. Which Yes, which means it's pretty broad. I tell people almost anything you could imagine or be interested in, someone in 4-H is probably working in that area somewhere. Right. It's really all-encompassing. The idea is that we use these different activities to develop youth, to help youth realize their full potential. Um, So if somebody has an interest in something and they don't really know where or how to pursue that, 4-H often provides that opportunity. they can One of my colleagues says to me that um, he works primarily with kids who work with cows. And he says, well, the kids think that they're trying to get blue ribbon heifers, he said, but I'm really developing blue ribbon kids. Mm -hmm. And that's really the whole idea behind 4-H is that whatever they're interested, whether it's archery or cooking or computer coding, it could be anything like that. could be government. They actually do a government civics program, but – the subject area is really just a means to have kids develop their interests and develop their skills. Right. And of course, one of the best known programs is the 4-H Tropicana Speech Contest. Yes. So are, do you have a direct role in that I program? I do. I put on the county-wide Tropicana Speech Contest for Wakala County and actually my our teachers. So it's a it's a collaborative effort. The schools, so it's fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And the schools, I send them out materials every year. I say, okay, are you guys doing it this year? Um, and the teachers say, okay, well, we're going to run it during this time. And they come up with school winners. And the school winners then participate at the county level, right. which I actually put on the whole thing for the county. And then they go to a district competition. And the district competition is the terminal part of the competition. I just want to stop here before I go on, because before I hit this other stuff. Okay. How did you find the time? How did you manage your life and find the time to do all these things seemingly all at the same time? It seems like a lot. <laughs> um, ooh, yeah. It's funny. I've been asked about that a few times in my life. Sometimes generally, sometimes at a job interview. Um, <laughs> like, is, are you serious with all this stuff? You know? Well, right, right. They're like, why, why do, you, why do you run around and do all this? And that can be a really hard question to answer. You know, as a single woman, it was your time is is very different, right? So it doesn't matter if you decide that you're only going to sleep three hours a night or something. Uh, And it doesn't matter if you're getting dinner on the table, right? Well, it matters eventually. Eventually. Yeah. I mean, it catches up with you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, But But, but you're not answerable to anybody for your time. You're just filling up your day how you want to. Right. You're just doing – right. Exactly. So um, I didn't meet my now husband until I was 31. So my 20s, you know, it was wide open. Let me go do – anything I want at any time. And I I did that. And then um, once I met my husband and got married, I started to have more structure to my time. And that that did change my approach somewhat. Um, That said, I I ended up marrying someone who also takes on a lot of things, who is similar in their perspective to life. And we... um, Let's talk about David for a minute. Yeah, let's talk about David. Tell me about your husband. How how did you meet? (laughs) We met at a speed dating event at the old Buckhead Brewery. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, Who who put that on? uh, Some company that professionally puts on speed dating. Okay. Yeah. So it was a company that was operating at the time, and they traveled, I think, around to different cities to do this. And it was advertised, like, on the radio and in the newspaper. And at that time, you know, I was single. I was coming out of a, a four-year serious relationship. Like some, I'd lived with someone and considered getting married. Didn't work out. And was back on the market, as it were, and looking around and decided, oh, that's different. I'd, I, you know, I'd seen it on TV, like in movies and stuff. Sure. So let me go try that. And he was in a similar situation. He'd been in a long-distance relationship, and that hadn't worked out. And so now he was on the market as well. So he had gone. And so we met that night. And the way they ran it was the woman sat at the chair, and the, when the bell rang after a certain amount of minutes, the men moved around the room. Right. Now, the funny thing for me is that at that point I had – you know, I'm 
31. I'd lived in Tallahassee since I was 22, 23. And I I knew people and I knew some of the men in the room. <laughs> like, really? This just cuts down my pool. This is terrible. <laughs> right. and, and, and some of them I had actually didn't even know from Tallahassee. They had moved there, here from Gainesville. These were people like from my past. That's I was weird. Like, I was like, wait, <laughs> what are the odds of this? Why do I have this right. luck? This is crazy. So that added Did any of them end up in front of you? Yes. To talk to yeah, them? Yeah, because they all come they to all you. They all do. Okay. So that was just crazy. <laughs> but um, but David came in front of me and we had the best conversation. And we talked about roller coasters, liking amusement parks and roller coasters and going to rock concerts and horseback riding. And we just laughed and had a good time. So when we – So how does it work if so you like each other? You get to actually – you go on a, a – at that point, you went on a website after the night and you marked who you liked. So you could say like an absolute yes, a maybe, or an absolute no. And I said, I said yes for him and we matched up. So that was a Thursday night. On a Saturday morning, we got our matches and how to contact them. And I said, I'm going to contact him. I'm going to go ahead and make the first move. And so we had our first first phone conversation that Saturday night, and we decided to meet for a date Sunday. Had our first date at Cabo's. Nice choice. It was a very it was a good, great choice. Yeah. Love that place. Um, and yeah, we basically have been together ever since. So that was it. No that doubt was, from the beginning. There was no doubt. Yeah, it was. We decided by November that year that we were looking at marriage, and he proposed. Um, that so this was we met late June two thousand three, like a week before Fourth of July, and we he proposed Valentine's Day oh four, and we were married August of oh four. Wow. So. So. I know this from a Facebook memory post that popped up online where David proposed to you on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yes. Um, at Disney World, at the Contemporary Grill, which is the top of the Contemporary Hotel, where you know, the monorail runs through that futuristic hotel. Right, yeah. So the restaurant there is got all like glass surrounding windows so you can see the castle and the fireworks. So he proposed – Around the time the fireworks were going off and, and this waiter came out with a, a silver domed platter and opens it up and there's a crystal slipper with a little uh, wow. a wedding ring and on the plate it said, will you marry me in chocolate? And Props to David for that. That's yeah, a, yeah. It was definitely very yeah, – that's, that's the full Disney treatment. There. It was the full Disney treatment and yeah, <laughs> super romantic. I kind of tease him. I was like – that may have been the most romantic thing, you know, you've managed That's to pull right. off. <laughs> well, when you start there. I know. I was like, you know, you kind of set the bar high yeah. for yourself. Yeah, he's yeah like, it's only he's, downhill from Yeah, there. yeah. So I, I can't, you know, I've not expected him to pull off anything that, like, you know, amazing. No, although, pretty good. Although he did. Yeah, it is pretty good. Although he did actually give me a surprise party the night after the president, the vice president Biden dinner. He threw a surprise party for me for my 40th that did surprise me. So that's good. So, so tell me about him. What is he like? Dave is a lot like me in, in the that he likes to be involved in the community and serving others. He's been a sports official the whole time I've known him. He is a certified ham radio operator. And when we first met, one of the things that we did together was actually volunteer with the Red Cross. So we did some disaster response together. That's very cool. So super fun, yeah. really interesting experiences. And um, then with his sports experience, he actually helped me coach soccer when I was a soccer coach. So that was yeah, yeah. really cool. And then um, he decided that he wanted to um, – comes from a military family and was in ROTC all through high school, started ROTC in college with the idea that he would follow into the services like his father. His father had been in the Air Force. And then decided in college that military life wasn't going to be for him. But that idea of service and putting on a uniform, I think, stayed with him. So um, later in life, um, later than most people do, he decided to go to law enforcement academy and be got his credentials and now serves as a reserve deputy with Wakulla County. In fact, he just got promoted last year to being a sergeant for the reserve unit. I, mean, I wish he had another hobby that didn't involve putting on a bulletproof vest because <laughs> there's that aspect to it. Um, I didn't, yeah. you know, never necessarily thought about being a law enforcement wife. 
but that's a real thing. Oh, for sure. So, um, yeah, there are times when I'm like, you know. I mean, every time he walks out the door, right? Yeah, pretty much every time. So there are times. But every right. time he walks out the door, there's the idea that, like, you know, maybe he's not coming back or he could get hurt. And that is um, that is heart-stopping for sure. So, but it's a big part of who he is. We love, we just love, deeply, deeply love Wakulla County. And getting to serve it in a lot of different ways has become a big facet of our of how we spend our time and our lives. Right. Well, speaking of service to Wakulla County, you've also served as president of the Chamber of Commerce. I, I have. recently yes. came out, you know, um, your year was up not long ago. Yeah. So now I'm immediate past president, which is which still is the best title which in the is world. the best right? title in the world. Right. Um, so I still get to sit in those executive meetings. Um, but yeah, I got to, I got involved. Um, I guess I got elected in 2011 to serve on the board of directors and then um, started my service in 2012. And then became involved on committees and service and was asked to become part of the executive board. And I ended up serving in every role on the executive board. So I've been secretary, treasurer, vice president, et cetera, on up to becoming president. So, so that's serving in a little different way when you're yeah. working on behalf of the business community and talking about economic development and protecting natural resources and it the is balance very different. of all that, right? It is. The balance of all that is is very different. Um but I, it's another facet of my passion for the county. So getting to work on behalf of the business community, also nonprofits. We have nonprofit members and government members. So it's really a, a way that the community kind of comes together. And then also getting to work in that role with economic development and our economic development council. Okay, shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to touch on some of the ways you've been recognized in the community. Oh, gosh. Okay, sure. Okay. <laughs> and again... There have been a lot, so we can't can't hit them all, but just in some highlights. Um, you've been a finalist or won many local and prestigious awards, including the Red Awards from Tallahassee Women Magazine, Distinguished Leadership Awards from Leadership Tallahassee, Volunteer of the Year from Tallahassee Democrat, 25 Women You Need to Know, and several awards related to a work with a fraternity. So... Just want to get an idea of what those awards mean to you, what it means to be recognized for your involvement and activity. And and um, I know it feels good, but you've, you've done a lot. And it, it's it's got to be nice that people recognize your involvement and your commitment to making your community a better place. It, it definitely is. It's absolutely nice to be recognized. Um, it's, it's an honor. It's like a humbling thing where – because – a lot of times you're getting recognized by these things, but it's also in conjunction with other people. So you get to hear these other stories. And sometimes that's really humbling because you're like, I'm in the same space as these other people. Um, they're yeah. really amazing. And there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there sometimes where you're like, right. oh, should I be here? Because that thing that those other people did, man, that just sounds <laughs> way more amazing. Of course, right? everybody feels that way. So I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not I, you know, I'm not those people. So I know <laughs> maybe, how I they're, feel. maybe they're like, I totally rock. I yeah, should win this. Right, exactly. That they could they could be doing that for all I know. I don't know. Um yeah. So there there's that moment where you're like, oh wow, that story. Like I used to tell people before I was honored by Distinguished Leadership Awards that I loved going to that event just because I was always just blown away by the stories. I often like to um sit back and be quiet and watch when I can and not always be that person. And so sometimes it's a weird juxtaposition. Like people don't believe me when I say that I'm an extroverted introvert, but I also – I really like to be sitting at home reading the newspaper with my cat on my lap having a cup of coffee in my PJs and fuzzy slippers. Like I – that's one of my favorite things to do in life and yet I don't always have a lot of time to do that. And a lot of that's my own fault obviously. Right. I also don't want to leave without talking about your involvement with Rotary. I know that's important it for is. you over the years and that you host exchange students and you are hosting one now. I am. So tell me about Rotary and what that um, relationship with – what that group means to you. So my involvement with Rotary actually goes back to long before I was an actual member. When I, um, it, it along the way of various service activities, I first encountered Rotary when I was involved with the Tallahassee Parrothead Club. And one of the members at that point was directing That was not the on camp. your resume. It's not on my way. resume. I know. I actually, 
I love Jimmy Buffett. Let me just say that. But enough said. (laughs) Right. So, um, but that club is, um, they do service in addition to listening to Jimmy Buffett and drinking margaritas. They also do a lot of service. So one of the things we did was <clears throat> was to go serve a meal out at the camp, like Rotary does now, but the Towsie Parrothead Club did it for years as well. So that was my first involvement. And then as an education professor, I had the chance to um, send students to different placements for experiences, and I would bring students out there to also do a night of serving and playing with kids and doing activities so I had had that experience. And then when this I- This is Rotary Youth Camp? With Rotary Youth Camp, right. yeah. So that was my sort of my experience with Rotary. And then when I became a high school teacher, um, the high school needed an, an advisor for the Interact Club, which is the Rotary High School Club, basically. Right. So I became the faculty advisor and got to go to Rotary meetings in that respect. The reason that we decided to get involved was Dave came to an event with me. And there was a Rotary student there at the time from Austria. And he met her and heard more about the program and said, we should do that. Dave and I haven't had kids of our own. We've um, been very involved in raising our nephew since my sister died, passed hmm. back in 08. And so, you know, no kids at home, but we like kids. We've always been involved with kids. We just didn't have any of our own. So we said we could host. And so we started doing that. And Dave loved it and decided he wanted to get more involved and ultimately became a Rotarian. Like I was the Rotarian. He had never been one. But the exchange program is really what got him to be a Rotarian. Where have your students been from? Um, Japan, Brazil, Croatia, and now Taiwan. Her name is Xing Han, but while she's in the United States, she goes by the name of Jean. Yeah, we we just love it. All right, final two questions. Looking back, what is one person or thing that has changed or altered the trajectory of your life? There's been a few pivotal things that have probably happened that sort of made an impression, especially like losing a few people Yeah, what has, was, has been really formative. I lost a best friend my freshman year of college, my childhood best friend. And she was back in New York, but we were still very close and actually left college for a few weeks in January of 91 to sit by her bedside. Um, she had severe asthma and had an asthma-related heart attack. And oh, it was horrible. She was um, she would have turned, we actually buried her on her 20th birthday. Her family asked me to be part of making the decision to end life support. That's a lot to put on you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was not not even 19 yet. And I still get emotional sometimes. Oh gosh. Um and she had been my best friend from elementary school through then. And um, that was that was a, that was that had a huge impact on me, just in terms of thinking about think basically kind of thinking the perspective of all the things that she didn't get to do that we talked about. So in some ways when we in some ways when we talk about me doing lots of things, I there was in my, probably in my twenties there was a there was a thought in the back of my mind that um, Lisa wasn't going to get to do any of these things. So I was you were doing it for both I was of doing them? it for both of us. Oh. There, there were times when I had yeah. that thought, and um, so that was something that was really impactful and probably made me push you know my limits because she wasn't going to get to do those things. Wow. So that that would be the first one. Meeting my husband, he's has been a major trajectory changer. Uh, don't know. I don't know that I would have stayed in Tallahassee if it weren't for Dave. Um, might have taken opportunities to go somewhere else, but it made sense for us to make our lives here first in, first in Tallahassee and then in Wakala. Yeah. And then losing my sister. Right. Hugely impactful because, um, like it made made me choose working at Valdosta State to do online education because of the flexibility it gave me, because I was then able to volunteer every day in my nephew's school in Tallahassee, and ultimately became a PTA president because I was there every week, and um, and then my work with the American Cancer Society. So yeah, losing her was hugely life changing. It's interesting that some some of your life activities are to 
in a way to honor those that you've loved and cared about in your life. Yeah, very, very much so. And I have to say, I don't, I don't think if you asked me this again in five years, I would probably say that my that losing my father because we lost him in 2013, and that um, I find myself going back to things that he said or did or thinking about like what would he say about what I'm doing now and yeah that's um I think at some point that I'll be looking back and thinking that that he did influence influence some things that I have done I can see that coming now but I don't think I have full perspective on it yet the name of the podcast is how I got here so we've talked about how you how you've reached this point in your life what do you think your life will look like in three to five years from now? Given given how my professional life has been going, it does seem like I'm on a three to five year cycle of some major changes. Um, kind of hoping that that maybe that levels out a bit. Um, I like I like where I am in Wakala County right now. I like what I'm doing. I think if I had the chance to become extension director over the de- the department I work for, I would be interested in that if the opportunity was available. Otherwise, 4-H, there's a lot of work to do with 4-H, and I can I can picture myself working with 4-H until I retire. I think there'll be more opportunities with the county, as we'll call it, county grows also, for me to continue my service. So I, I envision doing more of that. Um, but it's really, it's hard to project for certain things. I you know, want Dave and myself to stay healthy and keep hosting exchange students, and then Anything else probably depends on what happens with politics, because depending on who's doing what can can influence sometimes what I decide to do. That was Rachel Pienta. Whether it's inspiring a new magic trick, encouraging a student, or providing assistance after a storm, Rachel has always been committed to making a difference and our community is a better place for it. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.